couple weeks ago, I went to a conference, and the guy leading the conference started off by putting a question up on the screen. I'm going to do the same question. He said, what's the most important thing about you? And then he just gave us some quiet time uh, to process. And I remember thinking, I started going through some different things in my mind. The first thing that I thought was my character, who I am. That's got to be written. And then I was like, no, no, that's too small. And um, I thought, maybe, may, uh, maybe this is about my connection to Jesus. I think that's the most important thing about me. And as I'm sitting there kind of processing all of these things, he kind of interrupts and he says, I, I didn't get this question on my own. I took this question from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer was a, well, he was a prolific writer. He wrote 60 books, but he was also a pastor, a great thinker in the 20th century. And he proposed this question, and he also proposed an answer to this question that he thought made sense. Tozer said this, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I saw that. I was like, man, that's right. Because if you, if you believe that God doesn't exist, then you'll live your life based on that very idea. If you believe that you're God, then you'll orient your life around that idea and you'll live it based on that. If you believe that God exists, but that he's not very good, you'll, you'll live with a sense of fear about what God's gonna do next. You'll follow the rules. You wanna do all the details right so that this angry God doesn't take it out on you. If you believe God is a loving God who has mercy and justice at the same time on our behalf, it changes the way you live. And as I was thinking about that, I realized that so much of what we do on the weekends, what we're trying to do is find a way to give you the most accurate view of God so that you'll orient your life around that accurate view. Now, some weeks it takes us longer to develop those pictures, these accurate pictures of God, because sometimes in the scriptures, what's important is what's not written. There's things between the lines that the authors just assume you know. Everybody in the culture knew it. Why would I write it down and explain it? Everybody knows it works like this, operates like this. And so this morning, I want to do that. I want to take um, a little idea called why church? Why do we do this? Why are we together? What's in, why does God see this as important? And try to get us to a place where you can understand the value in it. But it's going to take a little while. And at some point uh, during the service, you're probably going to think, I think he's lost. I don't, I don't think he knows what he's doing. All valid concerns, by the way, all valid concerns. Um, but I want you to hang with me because I'm going to take a while to develop it because if you don't understand what's not written, then when you read what is written, you can actually come to the wrong conclusion based on what you think is happening there, okay? So, so um, let's get started. I want to talk about a problem that the ancient world had. It had it with governing, it had it with commerce, showed up in those two areas in a really big way with regard to communication. And let's take an example um, from the ancient time. Let's say you wanted to set up a trade route from Jerusalem up to Antioch. And we'll kind of circle those on the map. Jerusalem's all the way down there. And the first thing you'll notice is Jerusalem is in a set of mountains. It would not have been on a primary trade route. You would have had to go down some mountains and then up some mountains on the Golan Heights and out and around. In fact, um, Capernaum, where Jesus put his base headquarters, was in the main trade route, which is not surprising. Jesus wanted to be at a crossroads 
where he'd see lots of different people. But if you wanted this trade route to go through, you knew you had some daunting stuff to get past, all the mountains. And if you put it in a straight line, it would be about 300 miles to go visit that city in a straight line. It would not have been in a straight line. It had gone down off the mountains. It would have curved around towards Damascus. The main roads would have. It would have gone all around where that white line was and then back up into the mountains into um, Antioch. This would have taken a while. And you could travel about 20 miles a day by foot or donkey. And I'm thinking, why would I want to be on a donkey if it's going to take the same amount of time? That would be frustrating. But I suppose you wouldn't be as tired. But you're maxing out 20 miles a day. Now, if you're a good Jew you would not have walked on the Sabbath. So if you start figuring out how long that journey would take one way, you're looking at 17 to 20 days. 17 to 20 days, depending on the route that you took. You would get there, you would negotiate. That's a, that would have been a, a port city there that you would have been able to get some good trades um, kind of dealt with. And then you would have had to trek all the way back. What happens to your business while you're gone. While you're gone, on your way up there and then back, six to eight weeks. Uh, your, your wife's not running that. Maybe you have a trusted servant, but somebody's gotta be there to keep things going, the deals that you have made, keep them in place, all that sort of stuff. This was, this was not workable. And so people didn't do it that way. Well, so what did they do? Did they send somebody up to negotiate? They took 20 days to negotiate, came back down, told you what they negotiated, then you changed yours and said, no, I want you to negotiate back, now go back up and try to negotiate that, and then they come back down. Did you do that? That could take six months. That also didn't work. Can you see where this would be a problem um, with governing, too? If you wanted to um, have some sort of negotiation or you wanted to put a decree in place and then formalize it, that sort of thing. If you were to travel from the center of Rome anywhere, it would have been a while. Let's go from Rome to Jerusalem. You see that? And if you took a land route, which you'd have to cross over on the sea by Macedonia, but if you took a land route and you went all the way down and around, you're talking about a 3,000-mile trek. And based on that 20 miles a day, this would take anywhere from three to four months time. That's just one way to get there. Then you'd have whatever negotiation, whatever you wanted to deal with, whatever decree you wanted to place, and then back. The, the reason you couldn't be gone that long is because who filled the power vacuum that you just left by leaving? Because decisions were going to have to be made. What if somebody else invaded? Somebody was going to have to look to somebody else for the power. Oddly enough, you can see that section in Rome there and just go down towards the boot. Don't just go halfway down there. There was an island that one of the emperors spent a lot of time on and he was just that far away and a coup happened that tried to throw him out of power and he had to retake, retake control. So you couldn't, you couldn't leave and go away. And yet, the only way to get stuff done was face to face. Now one of the things the Roman Empire did to make this easier was they had roads. That about 50, now this is a bumpy road because this is over 2,000 years old, but this would have been nice and flat. It would have been a beautiful road, and they had 55,000 miles of these over 700 years, so they wasn't all at one time, but that's a lot of roads that you would have been able to walk on. Clear path, 
easy walking, go from city to city and do your thing, but you're still going from place to place to have face-to-face meetings. Now, I don't know about you, that seems like the hard way to do it. It's almost as hard as, um, how many of you can remember a time when you made a long-distance phone call that your parents were in the background going, hurry that up, because this costs a lot of money, right? And they, they'd be on you to finish that thing. My parents complained profusely about their phone bills when we were in college, and we called once every two weeks, right? We also did this other thing. I don't know if you've ever heard. We, um, we took paper and this pencil, and then we would write on it, I know, in like hands, and, and then we would fold it up and put it in an envelope and send it in a postal service, like in a mailbox, and a week later, you would get that correspondence from somebody. It was paper, not papyrus. Slow yourself down, okay? And, and you would read that, and you would write back, and you would send that. And if that had existed for the Romans, it would have been light years ahead of where they were at. But even our day, even our day, you can sit here and think right now, 30 years later from when those things were really popular for me, the instantness of having a cell phone, of email, of texting, all of that stuff has been light years again. It's another kind of light year change for us. And so I thought maybe what we could do is we could help you understand how some of this stuff gets lost to us, how we lose the understanding. And I'm going to do that by giving you a quiz, all right? So make sure you introduce yourself to the people at your table real quick. If you're sitting at chairs, turn and introduce yourself to the people around you. Say hi to them. Introduce your name. Um, but this is going to be a different kind of quiz, okay? So say hi. Okay, now, this quiz is different. I'm going to play three sounds for you, and when, when we do, I don't want you to blurt out loud what it is. I want you to tell people whether you know that sound or not. Yes, I know this sound, and go around and admit it, and once everybody's kind of acknowledged it, then you can reveal what that sound is, but I want you to see if everybody at your table knows what these sounds are, and then we're going to get a report back on that, okay? Here's sound number one. Do you know what it is? If so, let people know. Hey, I know this one. If you don't, tell them you don't know. All right, sound number two. Can you identify it? Oh, some people are recognizing it. The next one's so, the next one's awesome. Okay, here's your third sound. (laughs) Okay, okay. What was the first sound? 
First sound was dial-up. That's how you got internet. Okay, the second was fax. That was the fax. And what's the third? Rotary phone. I was around when the fax came into being, right? And I remember going into an office and thinking, you can get a facsimile by phone line from somebody around the world? Holy cow! Right? I was in shock. Now, my last mortgage, literally, I logged onto a website and clicked sign, 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 sign. I didn't even have a piece of paper in my hand. And, and it was kind of just done that way sort of thing. Now, I had to eventually go and sign stuff there. But all the initial paperwork, I didn't, I didn't even scan and email anything. Now, um, just out of curiosity, was there anybody in your group that didn't know one of the sounds? Would you raise your hand? Raise your hand if, you, if they didn't know one of the sounds. Okay, okay. Is there anybody that didn't know two of the sounds? Oh, okay, okay, we got some more. Is there anybody that didn't know all three? Right there, yeah. We had one of the guys in the band say, I knew they were technology, I had no idea besides that. <sighs> you wanna feel old real quick, that'll do it. What happened? Well, they haven't used them. And they, they might have heard of these things, but when you would describe them, what you didn't do was give them the sound that it made so that they would recognize that as you talked about it. That, that's the kind of stuff that happened with the ancient world. They all, they all knew it. They felt no reason to describe all the pieces that went along with it and the idea of this problem of communication that they had because they came up with a solution. They had a really good solution for it. But both of those go unsaid. They're not detailed out in the scriptures, not told you how they work, but you'll find all kinds of stuff in the scriptures that reflect in understanding that that's what they were talking about. They were talking about this system of communication that they had established. So let me tell you their solution. Their solution was to find an agent. And I know what you might think of almost immediately, you might think of, yeah, somebody like that. No, it wasn't like that at all. There's nobody shouting, show me the money on the other end of the phone or anything like that. In fact, um, it, was, it was much deeper it was a much um, broader sense that this person would be an agent for you because they were talking about possessing your authority. They, they would take your authority on them, they would go and represent you, and when they entered into an agreement, you would be bound by that agreement. The closest thing we have that maybe you would understand is a power of attorney. If you gave somebody a power of attorney, they could represent you somewhere, and when they, when they acted on your behalf, you're bound by that. That's exactly what it would have been like. So they would have tapped somebody and said, okay, I want you to go to Antioch, but here, I'm going to sit down with you, and I'm going to explain all the parameters of this deal. Here's the boundaries that you need to know about. Here's the stuff in between that you have flexibility on, and you, I don't know what's going to happen there, and neither do you, and you're going to have to kind of go with it. And whatever you agree on in here is fine. But don't go outside of this. Don't go outside of that. Know your boundaries. Know your highest price. All of that. They would have had conversations about this. So that when he showed up to represent him, he would be speaking as if it was that guy there. 
And he would enter into that agreement. Uh, you want to know what this would be like? Let's say you decided to buy um, a vacation home in Alaska, wilderness Alaska, middle of nowhere Alaska, but you didn't have the time to go up there and explore. And so you would find um, a relative, somebody that you trusted. By the way, they found somebody that was deeply trustworthy to do this because they're, they're being bound by the, what they would do. Relative, um, it could be a, a servant. And you're like, hmm, a servant? Wouldn't they mess you over? Well, some servants, because it was Roman Empire at the time, were different. You could earn your freedom and then choose to stay. And it was called a bond servant. You would bond yourself to that family and represent that family as if you were part of the family. And so that person would go up, and, the, and you would say, okay, I want you to look at 30 homes in Alaska, and here's the parameters. And you would start, you would start saying, here's the different amenities I want. Here's the order that I want them in. Here's how much land I want it to have. Here's the price that I want you to be at. Don't go over that. If you can't find anything in this, I might give a wiggle room here, but I don't want you to do that if you can. You would give them all kinds of information, and they would go up. And they would go into the wilderness where there's no cell phone, no internet. We're not going to give them a satellite phone. Don't try and cheat there. They have no way to communicate with you. They would walk around, look at 30 homes, and then sign a contract with your name on it, and you're on the hook for that payment. How's that feel? Does that sound exciting? Something you'd want to sign up for? Gets better. Um, what happens... If five houses in to this searching, the person that you sent becomes ill. They're not used to all that trekking around, and they can't finish it, but they know how important this was to you. They know how important this deal was to you. Because they have your authority given to them, it's like it's you there, they could find somebody that they ran into in Alaska that they trust, that they think is trustworthy, and they could designate your authority onto that person. And that person could go around and look at all the rest of the homes. And they could enter into a contract and sign your name and you would be liable. A person that you have never met, don't know what's going on and you only find out after everything comes back to you that here's the bill. How's that feel? Bet you control freaks are going nuts right now, right? How could that possibly be? This was the system that they had in place. They know the distances and the deals were so important and so valuable that if you got sick, you could actually put your authority that you had from this other person, you could put that onto somebody else who would then carry that forward. Okay? You're starting to get the picture of this. Uh, what I want to do is I want to take you to the book of John uh, because John uh, details Jesus coming up against all the different kind of systems that were set up in that um, time. And Jesus was confronting them over and over again. And during those confrontations, people were asking him, what kind of authority do you have to do this? Because authority was an important thing. How are you acting? Um, on whose authority are you acting? Would be a common question. So here's in uh, John 5. Jesus has been teaching and healing, and a group approaches him, and they want to know, what authority do you have to teach and heal? He says this, very truly I tell you, 
The Son of Man can do nothing by himself. He can, um, he can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Now you have to be careful when you read something like this, because um, our understanding of this, we would look at this and go, does Jesus have power or not? Is, is he God or not? Because it looks like he can't do anything outside of what he's told to do. And this appears to be a sign of weakness. Is that what's going on here? And what we miss is that Jesus, 100% God and 100% man, comes to earth in an attempt to be an agent of God, to represent God by carrying his authority. And so he uses this kind of language, and you're going to find it all throughout the scriptures. I'm going to show you more in John, where he says, listen, I'm doing this as an agent. I'm operating as an agent of God, which means I'm the bearer of his authority. In John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus is confronted because he's been talking about how he has a relationship with God. And people want to know, who gives you the authority to talk this way? And Jesus says this, if I can turn to it. When you have, lift, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. It goes back to this idea where you're going, what are the boundaries? What are the, what are the things that I need to know? How, that's what I want to present. That's how I want to represent you. And so he has this understanding of this picture of God that he's trying to put on display. And he's trying to stay within those boundaries because he's an agent. You can see this in chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say, all that I have spoken. Everything that you're hearing from me is because that's what my father has asked me to talk about, say, present, expose you to. You're going to see this over and over, and this is not a sign of weakness. This is an understanding that Jesus, 100% God, yes, but in his flesh, 100% man as well. I don't know how that works, but it adds up. He steps forward and says, I'm representing Almighty God. I bear his authority. And what you see in me, you'll understand being from God. Um, you're going to see this, again, throughout the scriptures. John 14, 31 has another part. You're going to see Jesus talking about this in terms of his crucifixion. Get this, verse 17 of John chapter 10. The reason my Father loves me is that I have laid down my life only to take it up again. And you're like, finally, finally, he's making a choice on his own. He's doing this, exerting some sort of power, showing that he has this power to make this decision about his own sacrifice. <laughs> Wait, verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this command I received from my Father. He is exercising his choice to sacrifice or not. 
but in a way that represents the God whose authority he is carrying. You're going to find this on and on throughout the scriptures, and there's a reason. I love this little little phrase taken out of John chapter 14, verse 9. At one point, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm showing up on earth, and you have questions about who God is and how he is and how he does things. And you've maybe read some stuff in the Old Testament, and you're scratching your head going, who is this God that I, I don't quite understand? And Jesus is looking at you saying, listen, I'm trying to give you the clearest picture of who God is. When you see me act, when you see me speak, that's who God is. When you see me show compassion, that's who God is. When you see me set a boundary, that's who God is. I am representing the authority of God so that you can see him and understand who God is. He's using language right out of a culture that would have understood this very thing. It's about to take a turn. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been training his disciples. It's time to go from the classroom into the villages. He gathered them together and he says this in verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over impure spirits. He's given them authority to walk into a village, to heal somebody, to cast out demons, to, to deal with that kind of stuff. But let me ask you this. Whose authority is he giving them? See, we would tend to think he's giving them his authority, but he's not been operating on his authority, and he's made that really clear. What he just did was what they would have done in ancient time. I've been given this authority, now I'm going to, he gave it to him in a limited part. I'm giving this to you to deal with impure spirits. But he gave them, the disciples, the authority to go and represent God in those villages to carry the authority from God so that people would know this is what God looks like. He extended it to his disciples for that little piece. I'm giving you authority over impure spirits. Hmm, it's more. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And they give him a list. Verse 15, he says, who do you say I am? And Peter, bold, bold Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I I've been bearing this authority from God to reveal who I am to the world. I'm Messiah, and you have finally figured out that I've borne this authority, and you've got it. You got it, Peter. I am the Messiah. And he goes on in verse 18 and says, I'm gonna build my church on that statement. I I'm, I'm gonna do something in you and in these guys that I've been working with, and I'm gonna start a movement. And then he says this, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 
Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He is using language right out of this. Basically, I'm going to give you the authority. And what you say is bound is bound, and what you say is loose is loose. I'm going to back you up. I'll back you up. Here's the problem. I've heard a lot of people talk about this verse. And, um, and one of the ways that I've heard is that basically what the scriptures is doing is giving us permission to make up whatever rules that we want as followers of Jesus and that God will come and backstop us. That he'll say, whatever you say is right is right, whatever you say is wrong is wrong, and I'm gonna back you on this, go for it. But it doesn't understand the cultural context. The cultural context of you going to that person who's about to give you that authority and saying, how can I represent you well? What are the boundaries? What are your parameters? What's the order that you want this in? How do I, where's the wiggle room? Where's the gray? And because you know all of that, you step into your role and you say, I'm gonna represent you well. He's talking about the church. He's talking about um, passing this authority down from generation to generation so that over time, there's always a group of people who are representing God to the world. Listen, this is why church is so important and so valuable. It's, it's not so that we can come and have great, great weekend services. None of that's bad. None of the programs that we do are bad, but it is not the point. The, the point of what we do together is that we understand that what God is asking for is for us to be the bearers of his authority in the world so that when people look at us, they think that's what God would be like. That's what God would do. That's what God would say. Do you know how intimidating that sounds? It sounds crazy to even speak like I would have that ability to represent God in that way. But God's looking at us and going, listen, I want this for you at work. I, I want this for you at school. I want this for you in your community. I want this for you at home. Th um, th this is hard. This last weekend, Saturday, I'm doing projects around the house and I'm getting grouchy. And my wife looks at me and she goes, you need to stay away from me because you're prickly today. Like, yeah, and I'm gonna be if you keep talking to me like that. Right? Is that representing God in a way that honors the caring of his authority? This is, this is hard. It's why God asks us to do this in community where we come along and we care each other and we help each other. We hold each other accountable at times. We do the stuff that helps us understand that we have a role to play in the world. And I just want to suggest to you that I think sometimes our understanding of what church is is that you come and you do this tradition on the weekends where you sing and you listen to somebody talk and you do all of that. And we've become really casual about what it is we really do here. What we do here is we try to figure out who God is so that we have a right understanding of him so that when we go out into the world, we represent him well. 
that when people see us, they say, that's what God is like. That's our calling. That's who we are. See, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of God. Does agent maker come to mind? Because if it doesn't, it should. Because that's exactly what he intended to do in our lives, is to put us together on mission to represent him in the world. Let me pray with you. God, to say some of this stuff out loud just seems unbelievable. That what you had in mind for us is uh, such a high purpose of carrying your authority to the world so that people could see what you are like in us. And yet that's our role, and, and we've become really casual with it. It just seems like it's um, not a thing that we think about. It's not on our minds. And I just ask that you would recenter us, that you cause us to remember that what you had in mind was that as we were more like Jesus, that we would become the bearers of this authority in the world that says, I, I need to know about God, I need to understand God, I need to show God through my choices, through my words, through my actions, and that we would honor you and take our place in this long line of history of people who step into the role as agents of God and out of love for you, we figure out what it takes to represent you and we do it. God, would you give us the courage to take the step into the role that you've always had in mind for us. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.